This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, Counterspin, The Young Turks, A Best of the Left Activism Update, The Progressive, The David Pakman Show, and The Majority Report. And a note for any listeners suffering from PTSD related to having lived through the Bush years, I have to warn you that this episode does make reference to that administration. This tyrant has amassed a large cache of chemical and biological weapons of mass destruction and is aggressively seeking nuclear weapons. He sees America as the only obstacle to his perverse ambitions. And that is what he shares with Al-Qaeda, these terrorists against us. This deep hatred for America. We must not let him share anything else with these terrorists, Mr. Speaker. And with that, Mr. Speaker, it's a painful vote, it's a painful subject, it's a painful issue. But this is a cause that we cannot go unanswered. I urge a yes vote, and I urge passage of this resolution. That was Wisconsin Congressman Paul Ryan, now presumptive vice presidential nominee. Paul Ryan, back in October 2002, explaining his vote in favor of invading Iraq. Because of all those weapons of mass destruction, Saddam Hussein had stockpiled and was ready to deliver to the al-Qaeda terrorists. Paul Ryan will probably not be asked on the campaign trail about how wrong he was about Iraq when he voted to authorize a unilateral, preemptive, preventive war for something that wasn't there. The Iraq war is over and pretty much nobody in American politics talks about it very much anymore if they are not a member of the Cheney family. That said, if the Romney campaign wanted to draw attention to Paul Ryan's disastrous record on Iraq, they could not have picked a better senior advisor for him. They have elevated a man named Dan Senor, who is already a Romney campaign foreign policy advisor, to be the top Paul Ryan staffer. Dan Senor was the spokesman for the U.S.-led provisional government in Iraq in the months after the invasion. He was the spokesman. He was the guy trying to convince all the reporters that the invasion was going awesome, when, of course, in fact, it was a disaster. The New York Times described what Mr. Senor did in Iraq as, quote, often delivering rosy accounts of the war's progress to reporters whose on-the-ground view of the crisis there was anything but. Washington Post reporter Rajiv Chandrasekharan described an encounter in which Dan Senor told him, quote, well, off the record, Paris is burning, but on the record, security and stability are returning to Iraq. That's Dan Senor. That's the Paul Ryan senior advisor. That's the staffer they gave to Paul Ryan, the top guy. The Bush administration flack who was charged with trying to sell America on the Iraq war as it was descending into chaos. But the Iraq war is over, uh, so nobody's asking Mitt Romney why he wanted the off-the-record Paris-is-burning guy on his campaign at all. And nobody's asking Paul Ryan about the weapons of mass destruction he said Saddam was about to give to al-Qaeda when he was helping cheerlead the country into a second simultaneous war at the end of 2002. Of course, the other simultaneous war that we were in at that time, we still aren't out of. The war in Afghanistan, the, Bush, the other Bush-Cheney war uh, that has now become the Obama war, uh, is still very much underway. There have been five so-called green-on-blue attacks in Afghanistan this week where uniformed Afghan security forces fired on coalition troops who are training them or otherwise working with them. Two of those attacks were today. At least seven Americans have been killed just in the last week by uniformed Afghan service members we are supposedly working alongside. And this appears to be part of a trend in Afghanistan right now, a very bad trend. By the Associated Press's count, there were five coalition troops killed in green-on-blue attacks in 2009. 
five killed in 2010. Last year, that figure was up to 11. And this year, which is still not over, there have already been at least 34 coalition troop deaths in green on blue or insider attacks in Afghanistan. NBC News has learned today that in response to all of these attacks by Afghan security forces on Americans, all U.S. military personnel in Afghanistan have been ordered to have a fully loaded magazine in their weapons at all times, no matter what else they are doing. The Army has also ordered that at any gathering of U.S. military and armed Afghan security forces, at least one U.S. soldier, one coalition soldier, will be designated as a guardian angel to stay and in a protected space with a loaded weapon ready to respond immediately if there is an attack. The Taliban leader Mullah Omar, remember him? Uh, he's apparently back, at least back enough to try to take some degree of credit for these attacks, but it should be noted that's always what the Taliban does, whether or not they deserve the credit. Nobody expected this was going to be a foreign policy election, but we are at war. Tens of thousands of Americans are in harm's way right now, and their families are hanging on every word from the war zone. What is politically incredible is not so much that we can have an election without talking too much about that war. What's even more incredible than that is that the Ryan Romney ticket is so confident in that result. They are so confident they will not be asked any hard questions about this war or the last one that they have put the spokesman for the last disastrous war right at the top of their campaign. There's nothing quite like the demise of a U.S. allied dictator to get elite media talking about the clash between U.S. ideals and reality. Thus, the August 22nd headline in the New York Times, Ethiopian leader's death highlights gap between U.S. interests and ideals. Ethiopian Prime Minister Amelis Zanawi was, in Jeffrey Gettleman's words, notoriously repressive, and much more. Quote, despite being one of the United States' closest allies on the continent, Mr. Mellis repeatedly jailed dissidents and journalists, intimidated opponents and their supporters to win mind-bogglingly one-sided elections, and oversaw brutal campaigns in restive areas of the country where the Ethiopian military has raped and killed many civilians. Close quote. That first word of that passage, despite, is a signal that we are supposed to see this record as incompatible with our own strong values. Gettleman admits later that Ethiopia is hardly alone in raising difficult questions on how the United States should balance interests and principles. He then cites U.S. support for Saudi Arabia and an array of one-party rulers across Africa. All of this, quote, despite a commitment to promoting democracy, close quote. Well, that's a strange level of commitment. Of course, there's a long list of tyrants, dictators, and human rights abusers the United States has supported. 
from Suharto in Indonesia to Mubarak in Egypt for a time Saddam Hussein. Reagan-era policies in Latin America supported strongmen and fielded armies to overthrow governments the U.S. didn't care for. Most people with a passing knowledge of this history recognize that there are too many exceptions to this rule about American ideals to make it a rule at all. So every now and then an article like this one appears, expressing some puzzlement over the gap between what the United States practices and what it preaches. An effective propaganda system requires these small openings. Calling some friend, trying to cash some check He's acting dumb, that's what you've come to expect Needle in the hay Needle in the hay Needle in the hay Needle in the hay In Cincinnati, uh, there's a station called WXIX. They have a reporter, Ben Swan, and he got a chance to uh, sit down or stand up, actually, with President Obama and ask him some questions. Now, uh, the president has been doing a lot of local press, uh, but oftentimes, honestly, they have a limited period of time, and it winds up becoming softballs. Then he goes through them all, but not with Ben Swan. He decided, I'm going to ask him about the kill list. Terrific. Let's watch. The so-called presidential kill list that's gotten a lot of attention and mm. this, this list of, of folks who have been targeted for assassination. Right. And on that list have been U.S. citizens who have not been afforded trial, including Anwar Awalaki. Mm. Uh, how do you, as president, or any president for that matter, regardless of party or person, utilize that power to assassinate even U.S. citizens? Well, first of all, you're uh, basing this on uh, reports in uh, the news that uh, have never been confirmed by me, uh, and I don't talk about our national security uh, decisions in that way. Well, what an answer. The president won't confirm that list, but he won't deny the list. Now, this guy's working at a local Fox station. Some of you might think he's conservative. I honestly have no idea. We'll show you another clip. I don't know if he's a progressive. I don't know if he's a conservative, and I don't care. That is a great question. That is definitely the question you should be asking the president. It is the most interesting question because he's asking for, or he's not asking for it, he's taken the right to execute U.S. citizens abroad without a trial, without any reference to the judiciary, not asking anybody in the judicial branch, just making an internal decision at the White House. I think that is an awesome and misplaced power. So it's terrific that we've got a reporter asking about that. Now he follows up on it as well. Uh, more broadly, though, uh, our goal has been to focus on al-Qaeda, uh, to focus narrowly on those who would pose an imminent threat to the United States of America. Uh, and that's why it's not just bin Laden, but a whole tier of al-Qaeda leadership uh, has been taken off the field. And uh, that's part of what has allowed us to now begin to transition out of Afghanistan to begin to bring our troops home. Again, what the president said here misses at least one important point. The president's war with al-Qaeda has gone far from the borders of Afghanistan to nations like Yemen. It was in Yemen where President Obama ordered the death of Anwar Awalaki, who, as I mentioned to the president, was a U.S. citizen and yet was never afforded trial. In fact, two lawyers simply decided that Awalaki could be killed. In addition to killing him, the president also ordered a drone strike that killed Awalaki's 16-year-old son, Abdul Rahman Awalaki. That 16-year-old, also a U.S. citizen, born in Denver, Colorado. 
So for the president to make the argument that killing those U.S. citizens without due process in Yemen means the end to the Afghanistan war is simply disingenuous. Good on you, Ben Swan. That's just some journalism right there. Again, it doesn't matter what side you are in politically. This is a matter of uh, constitutional importance, and it should be to all Americans. Now, the president's answers there were disingenuous in a couple of ways. He said, oh, no, no, I don't talk about that in public. I never confirmed to kill us. Oh, come on, man. Your administration clearly leaked it. You're basically bragging about it in the press behind the scenes. And for you to say, now, kill us, what, man, kill us? Uh, but we know they're dead. In fact, there's three U.S. citizens who've been executed at least, okay? Now, they say that they did Anwar al-Ablaki on purpose. Abdul Rahman al-Ablaki, that's the 16-year-old kid that they were just showing there, was by accident when they were targeting someone else. By the way, they didn't get the person they were targeting, but that 16-year-old American citizen is dead anyway. No due process. I, I need you to understand this, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. Whoever the next president is, whether they're Democrat or a Republican or something else, can use this power, if we don't stop it, to execute any U.S. citizen without a trial, without any due process. You think that's crazy, that can't happen, but it already has happened. And you think, oh, well, they, they're just Arabs. They're over there in Afghanistan or Yemen. Apparently even the president has trouble distinguishing, given that he's claiming that this has something to do with what's going on in Afghanistan, strikes in Somalia. Now, I know, look, there's a broad war on terror, but you can't say, I'm winding down the Afghanistan war because I killed some U.S. citizens in Yemen. That doesn't make any sense. But you think there won't be mission creep? Even if you're not worried, oh, it's okay, I'm not Muslim, I'm not Arab. But once you set down the rule that U.S. citizens can be killed, you think there isn't going to come a point where they're like, well, okay, he wasn't quite a terrorist like a militant, but he was a drug terrorist. And then you can see the mission creep coming. No, no, no. It's a matter of principle and rule of law. These strikes against U.S. citizens that take away our constitutional rights, that take away our lives without even going to the judiciary at all, are totally unacceptable. That is totally unconstitutional, and I love that a local reporter like Ben Swan asked about it. The president and all politicians should always be aggressively questioned on the real issues like that. Walked into a room where I had no friends to say goodbye. Crossed the ocean, my fingers, my heart, and I hope to die. You're not the only one who feels alone at night You're not the only one who's scared to turn off the lights You're not the only one who regrets the days you've lost You're not the only one who's counting up the cost Welcome to the Best of the Left Activism Update. My name is Lauren, and I'm the Activism Czar at bestoftheleft.com. As many of you know, last month, three members of the feminist punk band collective Pussy Riot were found guilty of, quote, hooliganism motivated by religious hatred, and sentenced to two years in a labor camp for their 30-second peaceful performance at a Moscow cathedral. The presiding judge ruled that the three women offended Orthodox Christian values when they entered Moscow's Cathedral of Christ the Savior, having crossed themselves and performing a punk prayer song titled Virgin Mary Put Putin Away in protest of Russian President Vladimir Putin's re-election. Pussy Riot's plight has attracted global attention, and rightfully so, as freedom of expression has been under attack in Putin's Russia for more than a decade. 
Amnesty International slammed the Pussy Riot verdict as a bitter blow for freedom of expression, and protests were staged around the world as world leaders decried the harsh sentence. While the Moscow City Court will hear their defense appeal this October, now Russian police are hunting the other two members of the band who also allegedly participated in that performance. They are also investigating the women's lawyers with possible charges pending. Though many international and political injustices occur on a daily basis, think about the plights of women or gays in places such as Saudi Arabia or Iran. This punishment holds special symbolic significance against women who speak up against political oppression. It may very well be true that many Russians were offended by Pussy Riot's actions, but the women never incited violence and they do not deserve prison terms. They were prosecuted for political reasons and they are prisoners of conscience. And if you think this matter is not about you, well think again. Just think about Occupy and the G20 and the recent passages of laws around our country that are rapidly limiting your freedoms to protest and peacefully express dissent. So please go to Amnesty International's American Action site at our link at bit.ly slash freepussyriotnow to send your message and petition Russia's Prosecutor General and the American Ambassador. Likewise, for more information about the case, you can follow all the developments at freepussyriot.org. This has been a Best of the Left activism update. For more information about the links in this segment, please consult the show notes at bestoftheleft.com. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. This week marks a grisly milestone. The 2,000th U.S. serviceman has now died in Afghanistan. And the pace of those deaths has only increased, with Obama's surge bringing about a surge of U.S. deaths. Just in the last week alone, nine U.S. servicemen have died at the hands of Afghan security forces who are supposed to be our allies. President Obama needs to ask himself, as I'm sure many of our servicemen and their families are asking themselves, why are we over there? if even our so-called friends are killing us. There are now more than twice as many U.S. servicemen in Afghanistan today than on the day George W. Bush left office. And the reasons for keeping them there just grow murkier and murkier. Osama bin Laden, after all, is dead, and he was killed not in Afghanistan, but in Pakistan. Defenders of the war say we need to stay there to keep the Taliban from coming back to power. But Karzai himself has endorsed a code of conduct by the country's Islamic Council that approves of husbands beating their wives under Sharia law. The United States is not at war with Afghanistan for humanitarian reasons. It's there because Afghanistan borders Iran to the west and China to the east, two countries in the Pentagon's sites. And Afghanistan is also a transport for oil from the stands of the former Soviet Union down to the Arabian Sea. These are not decent reasons, though, for letting 2,000 U.S. servicemen perish. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. How long 
As we've said many times before, much of the coverage of the threat posed by Iran and the subsequent threats from the U.S. and Israel to take military action treat allegation as if it were fact. As the Washington Post put it on August 17th, Israeli threats to attack Iran, quote, are forcing an unwelcome debate in the thick of a presidential campaign about the U.S. role in stopping an Iranian bomb, close quote. You see similar language elsewhere. The United States will not allow Iran to acquire a nuclear weapon or even a reference to the idea that there's still time for sanctions and negotiations to persuade Iran not to build a nuclear weapon. Well, this all makes sense only if Iran is actually building a nuclear weapon. They adamantly say they are not, and there is no evidence yet to show that they're lying. And if a story is, like this one in the Washington Post, entirely about the status of Iran's nuclear program, then that information belongs somewhere other than where it appears, the very last paragraph. Breaking news out of Libya, the U.S. ambassador to Libya, Jade Christopher Stevens, along with three embassy staffers, have been killed in an attack on the American consulate in uh, Benghazi. This happened when a mob of protesters and gunmen overwhelmed the U.S. consulate, set fire to it in outrage over a film that ridicules Islam's prophet Muhammad. Now, Libya's new president already apologized uh, for the attack today, which underlined the lawlessness plaguing the entire region. What's interesting is that the, the uh, promotion of this movie that ridicules prophet Muhammad is linked to Terry Jones. Remember Terry Jones, the Quran burner who has been interviewed on this program in, to, in 2010, I believe it was, and uh, stopped it. I think it took a, a call from President Obama or Donald Rumsfeld for him to not burn the Qurans. Eventually he said, oh, you know what, I do want the publicity. So like a year later he burned the Qurans, but by then nobody cared anymore. Maybe it wasn't a full year later. He's linked to this. Okay, not surprising. I emailed the Dove World Outreach Center asking for an interview right away with the good pastor. I have a number of questions for him. Uh, haven't heard back so far, Lewis. Not surprising. I don't think you will. Ambassador Chris Stevens was 52 years old. He died as he and a group of embassy employees went to the consulate to try to evacuate staff as a crowd of hundreds attacked the consulate yesterday, uh, last night. A lot of them firing machine guns, rocket-propelled grenades, so on and so forth. Very, very sad story. Um, Mitt Romney right away coming out and criticizing a statement he credits President Obama with having made, which he claims is apologizing for offending Muslims. Of course, it was actually, turns out, Mitt Romney again has his foot in his mouth. 
it was a statement released prior to this particular incident. If you actually just look at the timeline, Mitt Romney again putting his foot in his mouth trying to politicize this incident and take any grasping at all straws given the fact that his campaign has been particularly ridiculed and, and absurd since that ridiculous Republican National Convention. Mitt Romney again putting his foot in his mouth. And tomorrow, in our Worldview with Dennis Campbell segment, we're actually going to talk to uh, Dennis Campbell about what is the reaction overseas, <coughs> excuse me, overseas to what Mitt Romney said and to what took place in Libya. What do you think about this story? Um, so many things. Uh, I don't think it's okay to be afraid of poking fun at or insulting someone's religion. Uh, I mean, everyone should have the right to do that. This is America, right? First right. Amendment. Okay. Um, and if what you're claiming about Muslims is that they're godless, lawless, murderers, honestly, the best thing to do would probably not be to murder people in retaliation for making those claims. Right. Um, so... I mean, on both sides here, it's it's just complete absurdity. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. I'm Matt Rothschild, the editor of The Progressive Magazine, with my progressive point of view, which you can also grab off our website over at progressive.org. Right-wing fundamentalism took more victims yesterday when jihadists in Libya stormed the American consulate and killed U.S. Ambassador Christopher Stevens and IT guy Sean Smith, along with two other Americans. The mob violence evidently was sparked by a right-wing anti-Islamic film by an Israeli-American who told the AP, Islam is a cancer, period. The film was promoted by Terry Jones, the Florida pastor who gained notoriety for burning the Koran. This is not the clash of civilizations. This is the clash of fundamentalisms. President Obama was right to say, today the American people stand united and holding the families of the four Americans we lost in our thoughts. And Mitt Romney, for his part, humiliated himself by having his campaign send out a premature and immature and totally false statement that said it's disgraceful that the Obama administration's first response was not to condemn attacks on our diplomatic missions, but to sympathize with those who waged the attacks. Obama did no such thing. One last point. I want to live in a world where anyone can mock any religion or any idea and put out any film on any subject without occasioning a murderous response. Give me mockery, and don't give me death. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
just a couple of days ago, uh, the Justice Department said, that's it, we're not going after anybody at the CIA for waterboarding or for any of the other uh, torture that was done to detainees. Now, when Eric Holder first came in, he talked a big game. Oh, you know what? There's going to be accountability center. Now, President Obama regulated on his ass and said, there's going to be no accountability. Well, we don't look backward. That would actually be doing the job of prosecutors, which is what the Justice Department is. You prosecute crimes that happened in the past, not in the future. Yeah, but President Obama said, we're going to look forward. So he won. And look, to be fair, they looked at all these different CIA uh, torture and it wouldn't have been right to prosecute the CIA agents. They were ordered to do it. If you're going to prosecute anyone, you should prosecute Rumsfeld, Cheney, and Bush. Now, of course, they don't have the, as Clinton said last night, they don't have the brass to do that. There's no way they're going to do that. So they just all let them go. And interestingly enough, a couple of days later, what's announced, a 154-page report um, that uh, by the Human Rights Group, um, Human Rights Watch specifically, uh, about 14 Libyan uh, dissident exiles and how we torture them. Now, first of all, we were told that, hey, listen, there's only been three guys that we waterboarded. Pfft, nonsense. There's only three guys we waterboarded that we admitted to. Did we waterboard these guys? Definitely. Did we do worse to them? Definitely. Now, before you get all excited if you're a conservative and say, yeah, Libyans, they had it coming. Turns out these are the guys that were fighting against Gaddafi. Not only that, some of these people we tortured are now in the new Libyan government we support. We helped to bring in. But back then, there were deals to be made. Okay? And it's not just the U.S. that's criticizing this report. The U.K., which struck a really important oil deal at that same exact time, after the U.S. tortured these guys, the U.K. encouraged us to hand them over to Gaddafi on a silver platter, which we did. Let me skip ahead here to the last line because it is devastating. After one of these guys, Belhaj, arrived in Libya, British intelligence congratulated Libyan intelligence chief, quote, with Britain's help, was the, this was, quote, the least we could do for you and for Libya to demonstrate the remarkable relationship we have built. Now, why do they say that? It's a remarkable relationship because we're making remarkable profits off of that oil deal, and you can take these guys who are trying to overthrow your dictatorship and do anything you like with them. That's sick. So what do we do to some of these guys? Not only did we waterboard them over and over again, we had them in secret prisons throughout the world, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, Thailand, Morocco, Sudan, and as I said, eventually handed them over to uh, Libyan authorities. They were part of the anti-Qaddafi Libyan Islamic fighting group. Uh, but we uh, shackled them and put them in positions where they would uh, be shackled to a wall here. Let me describe it from the Associated Press here. Let me quote it. They were shackled in cells for months in a variety of positions, often naked in almost total darkness, with music blaring continuously, left to defecate and urinate on themselves. For example, Al-Sharif spent three weeks seated on the ground in his cell, with his ankles and wrists chained to a ring in the wall, forcing him to keep his arms and legs elevated. He said he was taken out of his shackles once a day for half an hour to eat. They said, by the end, we look like monsters. They didn't let them, obviously, shower for three months, and they're urinating and defecating all over themselves, putting them in stress positions, not allowing them to sleep, blaring the music, darkness, isolation. One of the guys lost his mind, started banging his head against the wall, saying, why don't you just kill me now? You think that's not torture? Does anybody think that's not torture? 
Then they put one guy in a three-foot by three-foot box with holes in it, and they started poking him through the holes. So they keep, lock him up in a box and just keep torturing him, trying to drive him crazy more than anything else. Then they take another guy. They slam him against the wall over and over again and punch him in the abdomen because there are memos written saying you can punch him as long as it's in the abdomen. You can slam them against the wall. And then we had Bush officials come out later and say, oh, it's not a big deal. We tested it. Slamming people against the wall doesn't hurt them that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except after you've already dehumanized them and you told these guys to take the gloves off. And then you told them to slam them against the wall and punch them in the gut over and over again. And then hang them from the ceiling from their arms and their legs. Something unrelated to this report is what happened at Bagram Air Base. We did a Palestinian hanging on a guy, which is not hanging by the throat, but by, again, by the arms and legs. Well, it turns out, you know, that affects where your blood flows, and he was in near freezing conditions, and he'd, we'd already beaten the hell out of him. And guess what? He died. Okay, if that's not torture, what's torture? Of course this is torture. If all that wasn't bad enough, they brought in one of the wives of the detainees. They let him see her through the people and said, if you don't give us what we want, we're all going to rape her next. This is the United States of America. They have soiled our name. Look at what they did in the name of America. How dare they? Maybe I'm corny, but I still believe in America. I still believe in that idea. That's why this stuff makes me sick. This isn't what America is supposed to be about. And what do we do? Now, look, Bush is at fault. No question. They gave the orders. Cheney did. Rumsfeld did. Bush authorized it. There's memos saying, throw him against the wall. Shackle him. Put him in stress positions. Don't let him sleep. Waterboard them. Simulated drowning. They did it over and over again. They're lying when they say they did it to three people. Human Rights Watch confirms it. They did it to so many more people, including people who are actually ultimately on our side and against the dictator Gaddafi. But Bush did it. We know it. For Obama to come in and then cover all this up, you know you always hear in politics the cover-up is worse than the crime? In this case, look, the crime is hideous. I'm not, so I'm not saying the cover-up is worse, but there is one devastating part about Obama covering for them. You make it optional when you do that. You take it from the realm of torture is a crime to torture is optional. You take it from the realm of America promotes human rights, built the United Nations, promoted the idea of human rights throughout the world, and you flip it on its head and you say, no, 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 America doesn't really believe in that stuff. We believe in torture, and the next time there's a president who wants to do torture, it's perfectly legal. Look, Obama didn't do anything about it. Zero prosecutions. So we're just going to go back to doing that in the name of America and threatening people's wives with rape. That's the America we're proud of? I love America. That's not the America I believe in. They took that, this country down a long, dark, nightmarish road. And there should have been consequences. Somebody should have come in and said, not on our watch. That's not the America we believe in. We believe one that's better than torturers and dictators and terrorists. Unfortunately, we didn't get a strong leader like that. We got one that said, we're going to give him a free pass. We're not going to look backward. We're going to look forward. None of them have been prosecuted, and it makes me sick. Going to keep on moving forward. Keep on moving forward.
turning back Gonna keep on moving proudly Keep on moving proudly Keep on moving proudly Never turning back Never turning back There is a story out today in the New York Times by Kurt Eichenwald who was a former New York Times reporter, now apparently uh, he's the author of 500 Days, Secrets and Lies in the Terror Wars. And it's in the opinion section, which in and of itself, I mean, I, I'm not that savvy about these things, seems a little strange. Because he's writing this as a reporter. He is writing about things that he has done reporting on. If the New York Times didn't think he's, well, they obviously thought he was a good reporter at one point. We don't know the circumstances under which he left. But if it was because they thought that he had a problem with his integrity, it's hard to imagine they would also allow him some space on their opinion page. <laughs> um, as a former reporter, I mean, that doesn't reflect too well. We're all familiar with the August 6th presidential brief. Bin Laden determined to strike in U.S. was with the title. George Bush was given this brief August 6th of 2001 while he was on vacation. He reportedly said to the CIA operative who gave it to him, who briefed him, good, now you've covered your ass. Time for me to go golfing again. Well, I added the golfing part, but that seems not terribly, probably far from reality. But he did say, now you've covered your ass. That presidential daily briefing, or brief, was declassified on April 10th, 2004, because the 9-11 Commission was saying, like, hey, uh, you've got to show us something. You'll remember that George Bush testified in front of the 9-11 Commission he only went in there with his uh, babysitter, Dick Cheney. They weren't allowed to be interviewed separately. I get, uh, I get nervous if I'm in alone, and what if I have to go to the bathroom? And uh, then you'll have nobody to talk to when I gotta go pee-pee. So uh, Dick Cheney will be coming with me. Not that we have anything to hide or he wants to hear everything I say and then do the old, you know, cough, cough, don't go there signal. So, uh, Kurt Eichenwald reports that the Daily Brief, that he has read excerpts from many of the Daily Briefs that preceded August 6th. And he says, I have come to an inescapable conclusion. This is having read classified briefs that are not available to the public and apparently were not available 
I don't know if they were available to the uh, 9-11 Commission. To the extent that they were, they have been classified in the classified part of that report. The conclusion he comes to is the administration's reaction to what Mr. Bush was told in the weeks before that infamous briefing reflected significantly more negligence than has been disclosed. In other words, the August 6th document, for all the controversy it provoked, is not nearly as shocking as the briefs that came before it. The first direct warnings came to President Bush of an al-Qaeda attack started in the spring of 2001. By May 1st, opines or reports Kurt Eichenwald, the CIA told the White House of a report that, quote, a group presently in the United States was planning a terrorist operation. On June 22, the Daily Brief reported that al-Qaeda strikes were imminent. An intelligence official and member of the Bush administration told me in interviews, writes Eichenwald, that the neoconservative leaders who had recently assumed power at the Pentagon, that would probably be Rumsfeld, that would probably be um, Wolfowitz and Fife, were warning the White House that the CIA had been fooled. According to this theory, bin Laden was merely pretending to be planning attack to distract the administration from Saddam Hussein, who the neoconservatives saw as a greater threat. Now, you understand, remember, these people came out of the Bush 1 administration. They were convinced that George Bush 1, the first, didn't go far enough, did not take Saddam Hussein out of power. They had been part of the project for New American Century, which felt that Saddam Hussein was the key and Iraq was the key to regional hegemony in the Middle East to control the oil fields, not to bring us cheap oil, but to control the spigot. In other words, when the Chinese come a-calling, uh-uh. You'll recall in the lead up to 9/11, there was a commission. There was a there was a commission headed by Gary Hart, and I think it was Rudman. Rudman, you're right. Who were trying to dig into what were the biggest threats facing America? Gary Hart told us on the Old Majority Report that he sat around that table. There were about 25 participants at the first meeting. They went around the table. What is the biggest threat facing America? Almost every single participant said terrorism. One person said China. People laughed at her. Maybe not laughed, but they didn't take her seriously. The second meeting, they were asked again. One person said China. That person was more or less disregarded. That person never showed up again at the panel. Her name was Lynn Cheney. Controlling the spigot, not just Iraqi oil, but Saudi oil, having a base of operations, which we now still do have, the biggest embassy in the world, having a base of operations in Iraq was the linchpin of the new American century. These people came into office and were convinced that Saddam Hussein had to go, whatever that meant. We had to have a base there. They were trying to, to convince 
others in the administration that the CIA had been fooled, so much so that the CIA prepared an analysis that begged the White House to believe us. Quote, the U.S. is not the target of a disinformation campaign by Osama bin Laden. Addressing this, uh, this, this lie specifically. The CIA repeated the warnings in briefs that follow. Operatives connected to bin Laden, one reported on June 29th, expected the planned near-term attacks to have, quote, dramatic consequences, including major casualties. It will occur soon. Eichenwald reports that officials at the counterterrorism center of the CIA grew apoplectic. On July 9, at a meeting of the counterterrorism group, one official suggested that the staff put in for a transfer, a mass transfer, so that somebody else would be responsible when the attack took place. Two people who were there told me in interviews, according to Eichenwald. The suggestion was batted down because they said there would be no time to train anyone else. This was so inevitable that people wanted to leave the division just so they wouldn't get blamed for it. These people had an agenda. They were stupid. They were ideologues. Maybe, maybe some of these people didn't care. They didn't necessarily contemplate the scope. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't see the words nuclear and just said it is a low-level priority. That's not inconceivable to me. I mean, look. Government makes a determination about what uh, risk assessment and priorities all the time. Dick Cheney didn't have his 1% doctrine until after 9-11, right? So um, it'll be interesting to see if we pursue this new reporting, and we, I mean as a society, and I mean the establishment, and I mean even Democrats and liberals who are not so concerned with pursuing things like who was responsible for torture, because in the words of the establishment, maybe we should just turn the page. Maybe that's why this is in the opinion section of the New York Times instead of in the reporting section. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. 
I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at majority.fm. Dick Cheney's at it again even this week as we commemorate the attacks on 9-11. I'd have thought he'd lay low right now since he and George W. were so criminally negligent in allowing those attacks to happen. Not only did they receive the notorious August 6th briefing warning that bin Laden determined to strike the U.S., they also received several other five-alarm warnings in the months prior to that, according to an article in the New York Times. And what did they do with these warnings? Worse than nothing. They not only ignored them, they discounted them and said erroneously that Saddam Hussein must be behind any plot. Cheney and Bush should be eternally ashamed about their negligence, but Cheney now has the gall to go and blame President Obama for the way he gets his intelligence briefings. Obama prefers to read them rather than to be briefed in person. Said Cheney, if President Obama were participating in his intelligence briefings on a regular basis, then perhaps he'd understand why people are so offended at his efforts to take sole credit for the killing of Osama bin Laden. Well, first of all, the president never takes sole credit for this. And secondly, what does it matter whether he gets his briefings orally or in writing? It made no difference to Bush and Cheney, after all. They ignored the warnings when they got them face to face. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Today's anniversary of 9-11, and uh, Dick Cheney wanted to talk about how President Obama shouldn't get the sole credit for uh, getting bin Laden. He said, oh, there's a lot of intelligence over many years that led to this. In other words, please, I'd also like to get some credit. Here's, of course, a problem with that. Dick Cheney and George W. Bush did not get bin Laden. They were miserable failures. Nonetheless, Vice President Dick Cheney said, if President Obama were participating in his intelligence briefings on a regular basis then perhaps he would understand why people are so offended at his efforts to take sole credit for the killing of Osama bin Laden. In other words, oh please, please give me some of the credit even though I sucked and never got bin Laden and neither did George W. Bush and our administration was a grotesque failure. Now, uh, not attending briefings and not paying attention to them, is that what you were talking about, Dick? Is that what you were talking about? That's fascinating. Because, of course, everybody remembers the famous August 6th presidential daily briefing for President Bush when he was down at Crawford for a month. You remember that? He was on vacation for a month before we got hit on September 11th. Well, in that briefing, it was titled, Bin Laden Determined to Strike in U.S. Now, the CIA gives a briefing every day to the uh, president. In this case, they sent a guy all the way down there, not through a video conference, saying, hey, this is really important. You've got to pay attention to this. They're coming, they're coming any minute now, and they're going to hit us inside the United States. Now, though, we find out that this was not the only uh, briefing. In fact, 
under pressure from the 9-11 Commission. This was the only one that the Bush administration released in 2004. It turns out there were many, many others before the August 6th briefing. And they were all in a panic state saying, please, can someone pay attention? Bin Laden and Al-Qaeda is coming. You've got to do something. Well, Kurt Eichenwald, uh, writing for the New York Times, uh, actually found out what some of those briefings said. He had access to them. So listen to what Eichenwald uh, says at the New York Times. The administration's reaction to what Mr. Bush was told in the weeks before that infamous briefing reflected significantly more negligence than has been disclosed. He said the August 6th document, for all the controversy it provoked, is not nearly as shocking as the briefs that came before it. It does not sound good, obviously. So what came before? He says, quote, the direct warnings to Mr. Bush about the possibility of a Qaeda attack began in the spring of 2001. By May 1st, the Central Intelligence Agency told the White House of a report that a group presently in the United States was planning a terrorist operation. Weeks later, on June 22nd, the Daily Brief reported that Qaeda strikes could be imminent. Further, but some in the administration, this is amazing, consider the warning to be just bluster. An intelligence official and a member of the Bush administration both told me in interviews that the neoconservative leaders who had recently assumed power at the Pentagon were warning the White House that the CIA had been fooled. According to this theory, bin Laden was merely pretending to planning an attack to distract the administration from Saddam Hussein, whom the neoconservatives saw as a greater threat. So the neocons come in and they've got an agenda. They're going to attack Iraq no matter what. Now they get the intelligence and the intelligence says it's not Iraq, it's Al-Qaeda, watch out for them. These guys go, oh yeah, yeah, they're probably head faking. Ignore that stuff about Al-Qaeda, it's probably misinformation to try to get us off the scent of Iraq. You idiots, you morons, we got hit because you wouldn't move off of your preconceived ideology that was dead wrong. The CIA eventually had to do a briefing June 29th of 2001 saying the U.S is not the target of a disinformation campaign by Osama bin Laden. He's like, basically, this is the CIA telling the Bush administration, how stupid are you? Not Iraq, Al-Qaeda, bin Laden. How clear do we have to make it? And apparently, no matter how clear you made it, it didn't work. Here are the briefings that he got on this, at a bare minimum, May 1st of 2001. June 29th of 2001, July 1st, July 9th, July 11th, July 24th, August 6th. And yet, they still did nothing. Let me tell you about the June 29th briefing. Operatives connected to bin Laden, one reported on June 29th, expected the planned near-term attacks to have dramatic consequences, including major casualties. Now, what kind of a president gets a briefing like that and says, I'll go on vacation? says, I won't have a principal's meeting, I won't do anything about bin Laden and al-Qaeda, I will not protect the citizens of this country. I'll pretend instead that it's Saddam Hussein, while my intelligence tells me it is not. Well, the same kind of guy who, of course, when uh, given that famous briefing on August 6th at Crawford, told the CIA agent, according to Ron Suskind's book, quote, all right, you covered your ass now. 
He wasn't trying to cover his ass. He was trying to do his job and protect the citizens of this country. Instead, your lazy ass didn't want to get off your stupid ranch. Even after 9-11, a couple months later, President Bush was asked about Osama bin Laden, and he had this grotesque answer. So I, I don't know where he is. Nor do, you know, I just don't spend that much time on him. I'll be honest with you. I, you know, I, who knows if he's hiding in some cave or not. Uh, we hadn't heard from him in a long time. And the idea of focusing on one person uh, is um, really uh, indicates to me people don't understand the scope of the mission. Uh, terror is bigger than one person. Doesn't understand the scope of the mission? No, I know someone who doesn't understand the scope of our problems. And by the way, you hadn't heard from Bin Laden in a while? How about 9-11 when we heard from him? You incompetent fool. By the way, you think they're gone? They're never gone. So here are the list of neoconservative advisors that worked with George W. Bush and are now part of Mitt Romney's campaign. John Bolton, Elliot Cohen, Kofor Black, Waleed Ferris, Michael Hayden, Dan Senor, Max Boot, Eric Edelman. They're all back, and they can't wait to come back in to power and screw it up all over again. And how does Mitt Romney feel about all this? The same exact way George W. Bush felt about it. When asked during his last campaign for president in 07 and 08, Mitt Romney said, well, it's not worth moving heaven and earth, spending billions of dollars, just trying to catch one person. So here are Republicans saying over and over again, we will not protect you. We don't care about the biggest threat. In fact, Mitt Romney later went on to say in this campaign that he thought Russia was a bigger threat. We don't care. We won't protect you. And then we'll brag about how we're better at foreign policy and national security. If all those people hadn't gotten killed, they would just be one sad joke. As it is, they're a danger and a threat to this nation. If you put them back in charge, they might screw it up just like they did before 9-11. And that is unacceptable. Jay, this is Heather in Evansville, Indiana, and I wanted to um, give sort of a different perspective on the, the Joe Stacy dilemma with uh, the comparison between being sensitive to the actions of a potential attacker of another race versus being sensitive to the idea that you might be victimized as a woman. And another way to look at this is the way that we as a culture talk about victims of different kinds of violent attacks. And that there's this conversation uh, about where the responsibility of victim victimhood lies, and that if you're a woman and you are attacked, you know, in a, in a gender violence kind of way, there's always the discussion of whether or not you deserved it, what you were doing, why you were at the place that you were, why you were wearing the things that you were, if you were acting appropriately, and all of these things that make women feel like the onus is on them to prevent attacks. Whereas we don't have that same conversation when it comes to just sort of non-gendered, random or racialized violence. If, if a middle-aged white man is walking down the street at night and he gets mugged or jumped or whatever, nobody 
especially not collectively as a, as a society, goes up to him and says, well, what were you doing in that neighborhood? You know, what did you say to that young black man that made him want to hurt you? So it's much easier to sort of externalize the, the cause of the violence, you know, and say that, well, if I get attacked, it's because of these bad people, this, this certain type of bad people. Whereas what the, I feel like Stacy was describing was more of this idea that I have this responsibility to be paranoid because if something happens to me, even if I don't necessarily intellectually believe it's my fault, it's going to feel like it's my fault because people are going to act like it's my fault. And so that is why there's, there's a bit of a difference in how those two things happen. I do think there's a little bit of a relationship, you know, in people trying to estimate their, their own chance of becoming a victim, but the way that you process that information and the, the way that you act is informed by, by that difference in our culture of how we treat victims. So that's my two cents, and thanks very much for the podcast. It's really great, and keep up the good work. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Allie from Philadelphia. Uh, I wanted to make two points. Like The first one is, is the difference between structural racism and rape culture. And the, and the similarities is that rape culture is, involves the constant threat of physical violence towards women. Um, the rape joke, that supposedly joke, that was made by um, the comedian Tosh was was not a joke. It was a threat towards a woman, and but it was referred to as a joke because that's what rape culture does. Is it is it references jokes that are coded threats. There are messages all the time that are coded threats to keep women in their place and and to remind them, you know, that like, this is what can happen to you. You are meant to be available at all times. And the the way that that pertains to structural racism is that while every man is certainly not violent towards women and every man is not a rapist, that the culture of that exists all the time. And the culture of racism is that while every white person is not a racist, certainly that we exist steeped in a culture that that puts on the news that that minority people are criminal. And that, you know, I guess Joe's dad is not only responding to his personal experiences, but he's responding to the news every night telling you, you know, that, that minority people are criminal, that, you know, this and that has been done by a minority person. The prisons are filled with minority people. And so, you know, not only his personal experiences coming into play, but it's also the the culture of America in the, in the way that we, you know, discuss and and view minority people, and especially minority men, you know. And then on top of that, the structural systems of opportunity versus, you know, what 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 does that play into crime and you know so on. So that's what I wanted to say um, as far as like you know, whether or not he's a racist versus whether or not, I guess, the caller was, to me, implying that the woman who called in was a man-hater. And I, 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 the second point that I wanted to address is that I'm very, I'm starting to get very tired 
over the, the last couple of months of the, the conversation that's taking place in, you know, in American culture around the issue of rape and rape culture in that, like, men want to deny that rape culture exists and that's such a level of privilege, it's, it's almost breathtaking. I mean, you don't have to worry about your physical safety and then when we mention that we have to worry about ours, then you say that we're paranoid. That's <laughs> so insulting. And, you know, who's left out of this conversation? The p people that are left out of this conversation are the women who are raped. You know, and no one wants to come forward and say, you know, I was sexually assaulted because the consequences of that are huge. You know, people don't look at you the same way anymore. They give you that look like you're broken. And then they want to know, you know, like, well, could you have avoided it? Could you have done this? Could you have done that? You know, it's, it's you know, as someone who has been sexually assaulted, I am starting to get very, very upset by this conversation and the, the cavalier way in which my experiences are being treated by the culture at large. And I am tired of being minimized and told that I am paranoid. You know, I am not paranoid. Who has the power? And I think that's, that's where I guess what I wanted to leave you with is who has the power, you know, in the, the racism conversation, it's not the minority people who have the power. And in the rape culture conversations, it's certainly not the women that have the power. So I, I'm just, I'm, I'm really starting to, to find this conversation to be, you know, really diminishing to people like me who have had experiences that are completely discounted afterwards and um, I appreciate your uh, your time and I uh, love the show thank you hello Jay this is Joe from New York I just got done listening to your response to my call from last week and um, I, I just thought I'd contribute a little bit more you, you mentioned that you thought I was presenting a false equivalency between uh, my dad and Stacy on the other hand and but you couldn't articulate why you felt that was that was a false equivalency I think I know why it comes across like that so I'm gonna tell you what I think you tell me if, if I'm completely off base or not uh, with women it's very easy to see what the source of their vulnerability is the physical difference in strength between men and women is obvious and the the fact that women are subject to male attention uh, those two things together it's obvious for everyone to see how a woman could be vulnerable um, and why that vulnerability could be uh, internalized so that's that's why it seems that's you know that's Stacy's side you're looking at my dad and saying well as a man there's nothing there's nothing about his condition as a man that would lend itself to that kind of innate disadvantage. And I think that's why you're saying they're not comparable. But um, look at it look at it differently. Stop, don't limit yourself to just gender or race. There are other sources of uh, a burden. And uh, in his case, he's not being a racist, but what he's being is he's a man who lived through uh, some of the... Uh, he's always lived in urban areas. Uh, he's lived in New York City during a time when crime was much worse than it is today. 
And if you ask anybody who's from here 30 years ago what it was like, and they'll tell you that that pervasive fear of crime was everywhere. And it was every, every bit as real and, and threatening to every New Yorker as the presence of male violence or sexual violence is to Stacy and other women. So what my dad's done, just like Stacy, he's taken his, he's taken a real external threat, internalized it, and the result is that he's, he's taken a defensive posture when he's in the presence of what he perceives to be the most likely threat to him, which is kind of the same thing that Stacy's doing. She's internalized a valid threat, and she's adopted a defensive posture as a response to it. The only difference is the object of their suspicion. <clears throat> men for her, uh, minorities for my old man. So I know that seems uh, like, a, like a, a bad comparison, but when you look at it through the lens of uh, an internalized threat, um, they make a little more sense. And um, if, you know, I, I think I wasn't explaining that well before, and if I kind of misrepresented my dad as kind of a, as a racist, then I need to apologize to him. Um, for describing him like that and apologizing to you by, by not explaining well um, his state of mind. So um, that's pretty much what I wanted to say and with the whole comparison between the two, I think we've missed the point I was trying to make and that perception, uh, the lens that we view privilege can be just as much of a factor in, in the concept of majority privilege as the reality of it. Some, I think both my dad and Stacey are taking a real genuine issue but the lens they've chosen to look at it has magnified it to be bigger than it is and that was that was really the point i was trying to make before i got somewhat sidetracked into the question of is this a valid or false equivalency or not so um if that's what you're thinking let me know if not um if i'm totally off base then let me know too love the show and uh thanks a lot bye Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So I know I let the voicemails go a little longer than normal today, but I thought they were worthwhile, and I'm basically going to uh, let them speak for themselves. If you would like to add something to the conversation, go ahead and call into the voicemail line yourself. And uh, I just have a quick programming note uh, to clarify something about the previous episode on queer rights. There was an original edition of the show that was posted and was only downloaded by a couple of thousand people before I had a chance to, to pull it down. And what happened was that I was informed that a story contained in that show had actually uh, been updated and was no longer valid. And the story was that a, a lesbian had been uh, attacked in her home by three masked men and had uh, anti-gay epithets carved into her skin and then it was brought to my attention that that woman has now been charged with uh, filing false reports and so it doesn't mean it didn't happen it just means whether or not it happened is very very much in question and so I did what I thought was the right thing to do was to pull the show down uh, when I knew that I couldn't stand behind the story which is the same thing that the Young Turks did they originally reported the story and that it was their clip I was playing in the show and it turns out that they had pulled down that clip from their YouTube channel as well
So a handful of people received two editions of the show, one of them about five minutes shorter than the other one, and everyone else just received you know, the five-minute shorter edition and never saw the longer one in the first place, but I just want to clarify that that happened and that's why. So that's it for today. Thanks to everyone uh, again for listening, especially thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making a one-time donation. That is absolutely how the show survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thought and black and white took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to We'll take you out any open door This is not my life It's just a fun fact